Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Have you ever wondered, now what? Right, perhaps the, the job that you had worked at for years was no longer yours due to retirement or otherwise, and you were left wondering what life will look like without it. Perhaps you received an all clear on that medical journey that took every ounce of energy and mental capacity since its diagnosis, and now you're hit with questions of what life looks like healthy. Or maybe you recently threw your graduation cap in the air and that constant default of what you were going to do next year was thrown in the air with it. Perhaps a relationship came to an end and you were so intertwined with that person that you don't even really know who you are without them and you're left with a blank picture of what the future holds. Maybe you've been working so hard for a competition or a significant exam that you don't even know what to do with yourself once it's over, or perhaps your last child has moved out of the house, and after years of playing the role of caregiver, you're left wondering how you'll spend all that newfound free time and how you'll adapt to the newfound silence in your home. Well, today we find ourselves in chapter 8 in our study of the Old Testament book of Genesis, and we come right up against a significant now what moment in the life of Noah and his family, roughly one whole year after the great flood began. Well, good morning, church. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you are with us today. Good morning. Uh, if, if you have been following with us over the past number of weeks, we have been unpacking the context and details of the great flood as outlined in the scriptures and how God saved humanity through one man and his family, inviting them to build a boat within which they and several thousand animals could weather the storm. And at the end of our text last week, Noah came to realize that after over a year of waiting... As verse 13 said, the water had finally dried up from the earth. What a crazy year Noah and his family had just experienced, right? The, the persecution of an evil world taunting them and rejecting their God. The realization that no one, even many in their family, would join them. The devastation as they watched and likely heard the screams of everyone they knew face their ultimate end. The exhaustion as they tended to thousands of animals and their needs. The claustrophobia as they lived stuck within the walls of the boat with no access to the outside world or respite from the smells and noises that were surely a part of it. The isolation as they floated and waited, knowing that all that was left alive on God's great earth was with them in the boat. Right? This experience on the ark was a wild ride in more ways than one. And here, we find them facing the now what? The uncertainty of what was to come next. 
Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 8, starting at verse 15, as the text answers this all-important question for Noah. So we're going to start in Genesis 8 at verse 15, and we're going to read all the way through to 917. 815. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though their every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, of every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human blood, humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today that as we encounter it, we would be changed, that we would leave different as a result of meeting with you from hearing your word, from being together. Amen. So there you have it. The now what 
in the aftermath of the great flood. So let's walk through this text point by point, reflecting on the four things that happen next according to this account. And I'm I'm not sure if you noticed as we were reading, but our text sections this off brilliantly with each of the four things that happen beginning with a then, right? There were three then gods and one then Noah. We see them in 8, 15, and 20, and 9, verse 1 and 8. And the first thing that happens after the flood has ended, as indicated by the then God in Genesis 8, 15, is that God calls them out of the ark. Right? That's the first thing. For the, the first time in roughly a year, after 40 days and 40 nights of rain, after 150 days of flooding, after God's act of decreation as he removed the boundaries of the waters, after the termination of all human life, animal life, even plant life, outside of those on the ark, and another 200 days or so of waiting, floating, and wandering, Noah and his family find themselves on dry land after God says the best words anyone on earth could hear at that time. Verse 15, come out of the ark. What a moment. Can you imagine? When I read this verse, I imagine a sort of epic Neil Armstrong moment here. The door of the ark, which in my mind has been fit with hydraulics, slowly opens, right? And out emerges Noah through the theatrical smoke and fog as God announces one small step for Noah, one giant leap for mankind. Right? Pretty cool moment here, right? Now that tells you more about the nonsense that goes on in my brain than it does about the actual biblical account. But regardless, God calls them out of the ark and they, as they have all along, obey his words. Verse 18 and 19. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the other birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. God's work of bulldozing the rubble of an evil world that had destroyed itself had come to an end, and the new beginning was ready to commence. And this leads us to the then Noah in verse 20. It's the second thing we read about, but the first thing that Noah does with his newfound freedom. Now, before we see what he does, let me ask you, what would you do? What would be at the top of your checklist in your first moments off the ark, knowing that your task of repopulating and governing the earth had now begun? Would you stretch? Go for a run, plant some seeds, make yourself a crown, disassemble the ark for firewood, seek out a Wi-Fi connection, right? What would you do? What would be at the top of your to-do list? By the way, can you imagine that to-do list? We think our daily checklists are overwhelming. Anyways, while we don't know everything on Noah's list, we do know what he does first. And our text tells us that Noah worships God. Noah worships God. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. 
The first thing that Noah did when he came off the ark was to build an altar to the Lord so he could worship God through sacrifice. Think about that, church. In response to God's gracious gift of his salvation, Noah worships. In response to the awesome power of God he has just witnessed, Noah worships. In response to the fair and righteous judgment God displayed, Noah worships. In his first act out of the boat, at his first opportunity, Noah worships. And what Noah models to us here is that worship of God is primary. Right? Worship comes before doing the practical things like building a shelter or shaving. Worship comes before things like strategic planning and vision casting. Worship comes before grieving and lamenting that which was lost. To Noah, before anything and everything that would threaten to distract him from seeing God's primacy, worship comes first. And friends, worship should come first for us as well. How many of us worship God as an afterthought? How many of us limit our worship of God to an hour on Sunday morning? Or with a a feeble thank you if we remember an answered prayer? How many of us worship God second or third or 20th, you know, after all those other things that I have to do? Just as we read last week that God remembered Noah, remember that? It's important for us to see here that in turn, Noah remembered God. Noah remembered God. And church, may we be a people who remember our God first and foremost in everything, daily, hourly, coming humbly before him with gratitude and honor and sacrifice. And it's through sacrifice that Noah worships God here. And more specifically, the sacrifice of a burnt offering. And as this is the first mention of burnt offerings that we've seen in the scriptures, we're invited to ask, what is a burnt offering? And why is it an act of worship to God? Well, the practice of burnt offerings is outlined in detail in Leviticus chapter 1, with verse 5 summarizing it by saying, You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So a burnt offering is the process of transferring sin or guilt onto another, right? Or in this case, a clean animal without blemish so that they serve as a substitute and die the death that is deserved by the one making the offering. And so at its core, presenting a burnt offering on the altar is an admission of guilt. It's an acknowledgement of your own sin and a humble submission to God for salvation. And so what makes this particular response of Noah so significant is that in this moment, Noah is acknowledging that his salvation on the ark was not of his own doing. That he deserved the same death as everyone else. And yet he was saved solely by the grace of God. Church, what a wonderful posture of humility we see here. Noah is not patting himself on the back for his righteousness. He's lifting his hands to God in praise because of his grace. He's saying, you are God, I am not, and the only reason I'm able to walk out of this ark alive is because of your mercy. 
The sacrifice here was an act of gratitude and of complete deference to God. Now, before we move on, just as a point of clarification, you remember how last week we talked about uh, the clean animals on the ark? And they came in, what, not in pairs, but in 14s? Remember that? Well, it's here that we see why. Right? Verse 20 says that Noah sacrificed some of the clean animals and clean birds, which is okay because there was still enough to repopulate the earth. If there had only been two, the animals Noah offered would be extinct today. And while we digress a little, it's an important point to note that God had made all of the provisions necessary for life to restart and to flourish. Which leads us to the next thing that happens after the flood, the third then in our text. God brings Noah up to speed. After Noah worships God, starting in chapter 9, verse 1, God gives Noah the lay of the land, just as he had done with Adam in the garden. Do you remember God's conversation with Adam in Genesis chapter 1? God blessed him and then outlined what Adam was to do. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This is what we read God saying to Adam in Genesis 1. Well, That's precisely what we see here, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to verses 1 and 3. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Right? This is verbatim. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. You see, just as God had done with Adam in the garden... As he blessed him, God gives Noah dominion over the earth. He tasks him with multiplying, that is, filling the earth, creating culture, civilization, and co-laboring with God in ruling and stewarding the earth. Right? In these two verses, God makes it clear to Noah that he is the new Adam, that through Noah, God will continue to unveil his plan and administrate his purposes in the world. But... In the midst of the similarities of, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, there are some significant differences as well. You see, while much of man's task has remained the same, a lot had changed since Adam's blessing in the garden. And God tells Noah that while he is to resume Adam's responsibilities, he should not expect that the new reality was simply a return to the Garden of Eden. You see, through Adam, sin had come to the earth. And although much evil was exterminated in the flood, sin was still present. God's creation was still contaminated, and things would be different in this recreation than they were in the original creation. You see, after affirming in 9, 1, and 3 that that part of Noah's calling is still to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over creation, just as it was for Adam, God tells Noah in verse 2 that because of sin, man's relationship with creation is strained and will be defined now by struggle and conflict. Listen to verse 2. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, 
and all the birds in the sky and of every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. You hear that? Fear and dread. Right? While man's dominion over the earth still exists, violence and bloodshed will be characteristic of man's relationships with it. In the next few verses, God says explicitly that humans will take the life of animals and animals will take the life of humans, a reality not present in the Garden of Eden. And as a part of this new relationship, or perhaps because of it, God introduces man to the possibility of eating meat for food. If you remember, in the original creation account, Adam was given every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food, Genesis 1.29. See, while Adam was given authority over animals, he was not to exploit them or to eat them. And yet here, we read in verse 3, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I had given you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, it is likely that men were already eating meat at the time of the flood, which says more about their lack of obedience to God and the abounding violence prevalent at the time, but it was not something that God had explicitly allowed until this moment in talking with Noah. And what this tells us is that here, as God gives Adam the lay of the land, he's not simply telling Adam how it is, he's actually setting up provisions to protect his creation moving forward as they live in this new reality that's been tainted by sin. Right? Men had already come to exploit and kill animals outside of God's commands. And men had also, as we studied a few weeks ago, come to kill and exploit one another. Remember the celebrated violent legends of the time that we read in Genesis 6. And what God does in this text is he provides protective boundaries around those things, saying that he will demand an accounting for all bloodshed, that blood is to be seen as sacred because it is connected to life. So while God explicitly says that humans may now eat meat, he qualifies it by saying, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Genesis 9.4. Respect the blood, God says. Respect the life. You are not to kill and eat animals as if you are simply beasts. You are to partake differently. Process the animal. Drain the blood when you partake of animal meat that you will see and know that your sustenance is at the expense of a life from within your domain, within the realm of what you are commanded to care for. Right? There's a call to esteem all of God's creation in this verse. Because humans exercising dominion is not a call to exploit God's creation but it's to respect it deeply as we steward and govern it well. To disrespect the gift of life is to disrespect the giver of life. And while humans may have dominion over the earth, God is still the owner and giver of life. Then uh, God continues in his emphasis on the value of life as he switches his focus to humans. Essentially saying, 
I will know when any human life comes to an end. Right? That's essentially what God says here. I will know. There will be an accounting. Whether it's at the hands of an animal or another human being, I will demand an account. Right? This is God reminding Noah of man's divine image. That every human life is valuable and matters to him, and every human life should matter to us as well. Right? Whereas animal blood may be shed, but not consumed, human life may not be shed at all, God says. Now, think about the culture that Noah had come from. Chapter 6 told us that violence was commonplace, even celebrated. That violent warlords were the men of renown, the famous ones in this culture. And so God reiterates to Noah that taking human life, which had become normal, which he was probably desensitized to at the time, is not to be commonplace because it's extremely serious to God. In fact, it is so serious that in verse 6, God says that if someone does take another life, their life would need to be ended. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Right? As we emphasized in chapter 2, God's divine image is on every human life, and therefore every human life has intrinsic value and significant worth. Now this command of, of a life for a life is not God celebrating capital punishment, right? This is God establishing a significant consequence for murder, such a significant consequence for murder that it should deter much of it from happening. Taking a life, violence cannot be taken lightly and must have a consequence significant enough to, present it, to prevent it and represent God how much God values it, right? Contrary to the culture that Noah had just left behind, people are not disposable. People must be protected, and this command is meant to protect the innocent. And so God simply tells Noah how it is. He shares Noah's role and responsibility with him, but he makes it clear that it will be hard moving forward as sin will still lead men into violence towards the earth and one another, and he must work to protect what has been entrusted to him. And then we get to the fourth then that happens after the flood. God establishes a covenant. God establishes a covenant. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, before we discuss the terms of this particular covenant, it's appropriate to answer the question, what is a covenant? Especially considering that this narrative of the flood is the first time that we hear this concept. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines a covenant as an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Can I say that again? 
an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce simplifies this definition, saying, a covenant is a promise of God to people with whom he is dealing in a special way. Well, between these two definitions, we come to an understanding of a covenant as a promise or the divine assurance of the way that God will act towards his special people. Right? It's like the terms of a partnership God's people have with him. Now, covenant language is used all throughout the scriptures, and God establishes between five and eight covenants, depending on who you're talking to, with his people. And some of these covenants invite the recipients to make specific commitments to hold up uh, their end of the partnership, while others, including this covenant with Noah, are one-sided with only God having commitments to fulfill. Now, one thing to note is that covenants are established by God. Right? Notice that. Covenants are established by God. We cannot establish a covenant with God. So you saying to God, if you help me pass this test, I will go to church every Sunday, is not a covenant. Right? That is rather a sad statement about how you view God. But the reason that this is so important to note is that what God establishes, unlike what we establish, is eternal, right? Is guaranteed. Well, the contracts that we come up with are flawed and likely to be broken. A biblical covenant is money in the bank, right? It is assured. You see, God is not like the politician who promises that they will cut taxes if they're elected, or the contractor establishing a move-in date for your new build. Right? God is not like the boxer or UFC fighter who guarantees a victory in their next fight. Or your teenager who says, I promise to be home by 11. The Bible says that unlike these examples, God is true, faithful, and dependable. In Psalm 89, 34, God says... I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. That's a pretty straightforward statement. Or Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? These are rhetorical questions with a big capital N-O at the end. And in Mark 13, 31, Jesus says this about his word, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. And so when God establishes a covenant and says he will do something, friends, he will do it. No matter what your experience with promises on earth may be, God's promises will be kept. And in this case, God is promising. He's definitively declaring that a flood like this like what Noah has just walked through will never happen again. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, please know that this is not because of anything man can or will do. Right? This covenant is a one-way covenant. God doesn't say, hey, Noah, as long as you guys keep it together, I won't flood the earth. Right? Or, you know, if you keep the violence to a minimum, I won't destroy everything. No. God says this knowing 
that man will inevitably repeat the sin cycle. Look at uh, chapter 8, 21 and 22 for a second. When God resolves to act this way, but has yet to formalize it with Noah. says this, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Did you catch what was right in the middle of that determination? Verse 21. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. I'm not going to do this. I'm establishing my covenant even though... Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. God knows that nothing has changed in terms of the human heart. Sin is in the world. Humans are born with a sinful nature. Free beings will invariably choose other than God. And it's with this understanding that God establishes this covenant. This is a one-sided covenant because it has to be. There are no conditions that man can hold up. God is limiting himself, or God's limiting of himself here is not in human hands. The continuation of the human race is in God's hands alone. And here, God binds only himself in this covenant that he will be gracious and merciful until the very end, no matter what happens. As Bible commentator Tim Mackey writes, God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. Now, if this promise were not enough, God establishes a sign of his faithfulness for all generations to see and remember the grace and mercy of God. And that sign is the rainbow, a majestic display of consistent beauty that appears and shines even in the darkest moments to remind us that like Noah, we are saved by God and every breath we have is a gracious gift from him. Now, there's something theologically going on here as well. You see, the Hebrew word translated here as rainbow simply means bow, as in bow and arrow, as in the bow of an archer at war. And the imagery here is the symbolism is of God at the end of a great battle hanging up his war bow. No more arrows of wrath will be fired upon the earth. God has, as verse 13 says, set his bow in the clouds where he and we can see that he has hung it up and we are safe from the onslaught that we deserve. Isn't that amazing imagery? Right? The next time you see a rainbow, picture it as God's bow, not readied for battle against us, but hung up instead. Friends, God has laid down his arms and he has turned the bow that should terrify us into a delight for us to remind us of how much we are loved. Which leads us to one final question before we wrap up. Why is it that God can simply make this promise? Why does God hang up his bow? As we discussed a few weeks ago, God was justified in eliminating evil through the flood. It was just and right. 
violence, violence, abuse, and exploitation needed to come to an end. And so why is God abandoning justice now? With his arrow hung in the sky, is God not going to eliminate sin and evil that will work to exploit God's creation after Noah? Is God willingly turning a blind eye to evil? When damage is done, someone needs to pay, right? Someone needs to pay for it to be fixed. If, if someone smashes into your car, shouldn't there be payment? Mercy and grace may be wonderful for the guilty party, but what about the victim? Someone still needs to pay for justice to be served, for things to be made right. Well, what if someone else, not the offender, but an innocent party willingly paid for the offense? The victim would be reimbursed, the price would be paid, and, and mercy and grace could be shown to the wrongdoer. Well, friends, that is where our message comes full circle this morning. Remember that burnt offering we talked about earlier? Where the sin of one is transferred onto another who dies in the place of the guilty party? Well, the promise that God makes to Noah and to all of us is not that he will let our actions go unpunished, that evil will be ignored, or that we no longer have meaningful free will with consequences, but rather that he would provide an innocent party who would willingly take our place as an offering to pay for the sin, the evil that we choose over God. As Timothy Keller writes, acknowledging that sin will go on after the flood, the flood did not deliver any real final solution to the problem of human sin, but God had a plan. His son would come and become the only true acceptable sacrifice to whom all other sacrifices point. He would take the ultimate judgment, the ultimate flood of eternal justice. He would take the arrows of wrath so that God could hang up his bow forever. Why was Noah's sacrifice so pleasing to God in chapter 8? Because it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God's covenant with Noah and all of his des descendants. Church, we must remember that the promise we read in chapter 9 is not the period at the end of the sentence. Because a promise always points to the future, right? A, a promise is of something still to come. That's the nature of a promise. If you promise something to your children, you don't promise something that's complete or that's already happened, but your promises are for, to them are for something to come. Right? You promise to bring them to the park on Tuesday or later today, but you don't promise to bring them last night. You don't make the promise while you're pushing them on the swing. A promise necessitates something that is coming. And that something to come, the final then God, the ultimate now what in the account of Noah and the flood is that Christ, not man himself, but Christ will bear the weight of man's sin. And roughly 2,500 years later after the flood, he did Jesus willingly endured the consequences of our sin on the cross. And while a similar wipeout 
or do-over as in the days of Noah would be fair, would be appropriate, would be deserved. God chooses to be more than fair, better than fair for us by offering to pay the price of his life instead of ours, by being the burnt offering for us. Which leads us to our ever so important worldview statement for today. Because of the work of Christ, we won't ever need to pay for our sin. Because of the work of Christ, we won't ever need to pay for our sin. You are not on the hook. That, church, is the amazing news of the gospel. That God keeps his promises, holds fast to this covenant, and replaces certain death with eternal life if we would receive it. As the Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans 4, 7, and 8, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Listen to this part. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Church, may we all be counted among those blessed ones. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, sometimes I don't even know what to pray. God, we are so humbled that we can come into your presence. And God, this morning we simply say thank you. As Noah did, we simply express our gratitude to you for what you have done. God, help us to understand. Help us to place all of our sin, our mess-ups, our mistakes on you. Lord, knowing that you have provided a way. Lord, you have become that substitute. You have atoned for it all. God, help us not to hold on to our sin and carry it with us. God, help us to release it upon you because you invite us to and help us to walk in the freedom that comes as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we respond? Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.